0: Welcome to 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, a retrospective presented to you by UtilityMuffinLabs.com. Welcome once again to 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. I am Nathan. I am Bob. And together we're going to be making a little bit of a departure from the previous two episodes that you may have listened to. In this episode, we're going to talk about three books. The reason why we're going to talk about three books is because two of them, they're kind of pretty straightforward story books. There's not a lot of real important information in them to the overall concept of the game. They, they kind of, basically they wrote three different books that they could have jammed into one. We're talking about Ashes to Ashes, we're talking about the Succubus Club, and we're talking about the first edition of Chicago by Night. Now, these are all three storyteller-oriented books.
1: They're designed for starting storytellers who can't get a grasp on how their vision is to roll out the game. And Vampire: The Masquerade is really, especially in tabletop, it's supposed to be or supposed to be a certain motif to include the whole gothic element, gothic punk element. A lot of people just sort of. Kind of play the game where it's like people with powers, you know, who happen to drink blood. And so they give you a guiding light into vampire politics and, of course, how their social interactions work in the form of standing, the introduction of status.
0: So to explain first and foremost Ashes to Ashes, Ashes to Ashes is a module. All three of these books are a part of the Forged in Steel Chronicle, and it's really Vampire the Masquerade's first sort of world-arcing story, even though it takes place centrally located around Chicago, Illinois, and Gary, Indiana. It's essentially like their first world-defining plot. And it's really cool that it takes place in Chicago. But Ashes to Ashes and, uh, to a varying degree, the Succubus Club, they're modules. They're designed for you, the new storyteller, you, the new players, to go through sort of pre-written, pre-staged scenes, where, of course, you can make decisions and affect the plot, but... That's what they are. They're modules. And in my opinion, modules are not something I personally enjoy too much because it doesn't give you the storyteller. It doesn't really give you too many options.
1: I kind of feel that modules are not like you said, they're not only textbook, right? They're very linear, even though you, it's like a choose your own adventure and choose your own adventures kind of dull. I mean, it's great when you were kind of a preteen and you're kind of getting into the idea. Of what of what gaming is, you know, in terms of tabletop and whatnot. But as a whole, it stunts your creativity. It forces you into a sandbox. It
0: certainly can. It can certainly cause a scenario where you, as a storyteller, are going, "Ah, oh, geez, they made a decision that I I don't know how to react to." Where is it at in the book? Where is it at in the book? And uh, your players will do that. They will. They will invariably do that.
1: And I personally hate it that that occurs because. Well, hate's a strong word. I dislike it because. It's it's not really storytelling. It's just somebody reading a module that some other storyteller wrote and saying, this is the idea I had behind it. Why don't you go try to execute it yeah. like a play?
0: Now, I'd like to make a, a little brief distinction between two out of three of the books, okay? Ashes to Ashes is pretty much a straightforward module. It's about 75 pages long, and that is a good, in my opinion, a good book to have to understand where the plot is going with the game that they created vampire the masquerade as an entity is sort of a living thing it's constantly changing and and there is a story to it you know like a great tv show or a great comic book or a great set of movies there is a story to it so in my opinion it's great to read as a storyteller to know where the game has come from and where it's gone it's not imperative for you to run with your players and that's some, that's my opinion i think
1: and it's important to note also i mean I, I agree with your point absolutely but the whole thing is that when we say canon it's actually you know it's short for canonical canonical Can okay, i say canonical right? canonical canonical uh, basically it's referring to you know we're, just how the bible educated. is start <laughs> to finish that sort of thing and people just shorten that to canon meaning it cannot be changed that this is a world-arcing story, here's what's going on in that world, and where your players can be a part of it, it doesn't empower them to change it, Uh, at least on the read. You can have your players change it. In fact, that's the point. Yeah. But usually it doesn't.
0: Yeah, canonical. Sorry, we stuttered through that. Uh, But yes, we we are are both fairly educated. Uh, Having said that, let's briefly talk about Succubus Club. Uh, Succubus Club... In my opinion, is something that in the age of the internet had it been released, they probably just could have posted it on their website. Why I say that is because it's essentially like 20 pages of a description of a big nightclub, right? And it's 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 a blurb they could have put in the Chicago by Night book. And then it's like hundred and ten pages of more of those module, you know, short little stories. And these are things that you would run your troop that you've you started this whole Forged in Steel, Chronicle, oh, yeah. you know, at the beginning. And these are all little tips and little little stories that you can run your players through. Uh, having said that, again, I feel that as a storyteller or even as a player, if you want to know kind of where things were going, great to read. Actually running your players through these, if you just started the game, if you just started the game and you started with us, great. Pick it up and run your players through it. But I don't think it's important. I don't think it's necessary to have 110 pages of you know wacky vampire stories
1: now when we talk about you know canon with the other books this is literally falling along it's hyper focusing on the one place that you can have all the vampires meet to do their politicking and feeding and even i mean really everything the club encompasses everything possible from from street uh street trash to gangbangers uh to to punk punk music rockers and even includes yuppies yeah the Uh, rich
0: older people
1: and this kind of rolls into Chicago by night, which we're gonna get more in depth in a second. And it's about Menelaus, which is a Bruja Methuselah, and you have Helen of Troy, which is another or excuse me, is a Tordor yeah. Methuselah. And they're warring over the city of Chicago. Why succubus club is important is because when you read the book, Menelaus has, you know, his minions that are in there and they note that, and Helen of Troy sleeps in the succubus club inside of a vault and you kind of get an idea why it's the hot spot and the place to be right
0: and we have to remember too at the beginning of this game one of the larger sort of subtexts that you'll find in this game is the ancients sort of battling it out through their intermediaries we find in later books they may whisper rumors of these elders these ancients now they are at the beginning, they're sort of ironing them out. They're putting them right there out on paper. And, you know, call it what you will. Some people see it as a bad thing. Some people see it as a good thing. It's just the way it is at this point. Having said all that about the club, the 110 pages of story I only vaguely sort of even represents the club. Like, the, it's in, in certain scenes that you can run. Like, the club is a backdrop. But most of those stories are not really important insofar as the club is required you could run them anywhere you could you know change it to your your game however you want to do it so i i really feel like the succubus club is kind of the first first book where i i just don't see a point in it i just don't i don't see the long term value of that book
1: and there's also a a blood biker gang which takes the place of, of ghouls now I don't, they're not the blood vikings like the name really no
0: I, they're blood dolls blood dolls yeah. well
1: there are blood dolls And the Blood Dolls in the club, they highlight the fact that vampires in the club have been there so long, their influence, that you have these young kids, these teenagers, they kind of slip through, that share blood with one another. And it allows the vampires to kind of masquerade in and feed on them. But then I really, it's like called the Vikings or the Blood Vikings?
0: I don't remember. Um, I'd have to look through again. Uh, I don't remember. The the
1: important (laughs) note is that they're another canon group. Yeah. That's used throughout all their books. I personally haven't used them, uh, but they're a phenomenal idea. in the fact that someone really thought a lot about them in terms of they travel around and they're not bound, they don't serve a vampire. You're talking about the Wolf Pack? uh No. The Wolf Pack is a group of gang Right. In yeah. Chicago the, the, by and night. Our, our, the Archons. Archons. Uh, this group, uh, what they do is that they collect blood, you know, blood packs or what have you. Instead of hunting vampires, by the way, they certainly do that, but they don't hunt these elders, right? They go to the elders and are like, hey, we got like. 100 blood packs what are you going to give us for it ideally they want blood from the elder and then the elder gives it to them and then they usually have a leader who's immortal because of this vampire blood and he takes it to be strengthened and they travel oh yeah you're
0: talking to you're talking ghouls yeah yeah Yeah. okay yeah I, i vaguely remember i think that they're ironed out specifically in milwaukee by night which is a book we'll get to later on down the road just to summarize the first two books ashes to ashes and succubus club or The Succubus Club. Really supplemental storyteller books, great for running beginning troop through the game, but personally, I don't feel that they really uh, hold a candle to Chicago by night. I feel like Chicago by night, the creators of this game, really for the first time, they sort of come into their own. Like, this is a really extensively detailed book, if you're going to write a, a book on, like, the history or locations of Chicago, that in and of itself is a daunting task, especially when you consider, like, these people aren't from Chicago. Right, absolutely. You know, this, this, these people, as far as I know, most of them are from Georgia.
1: But they really do their research. Yeah. And you can look at their inspiration, not inspiration, they call it reference material. Yeah. And the reference material is, you know, they got the Chicago guidebook. Um, Nate's about to quote you guys in a second. Uh, but the type of books that they use, Really It's all about Chicago, from the important streets to the important landmarks, the historical buildings, even, yeah. and where to go in tours.
0: they They do a really great thing in this book where and they talk about books that they use for reference and to help you uh, with with reference to if you're not from Chicago, most of you are not. Uh, but they use books like uh or Chicago. They use uh, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, uh, Chicago by Stud Sterkel. Uh, City on the Make by Nelson Algren, Carl Sandburg Poetry. Then there's movies like Mark for Death, Flatliners, The Blues Brothers, The Untouchables, and there's two geeks that have either lived in Chicago their entire lives or most of their lives. Right. Like watching these movies or reading these books, Like even if you don't have an especial fondness, it's like where you live.
1: They, they even mentioned the the rivalry between the north side and the south side, yep. that friendly rivalry. You got the Cubs and the White Sox. Yeah. They even mentioned them. Well, and, that's-
0: and, they, and they go into like so many different aspects of, of Chicago's history as told from a vampiric mindset as far back as like, you know, the the, the very beginnings of Fort Dearborn all the way through like, the mafia and Al Capone all the way up until this takes place in 91, but up until the quote unquote modern time. And how the vampires have intermingled with it, all the locations. I mean,
1: they even mentioned Jean Baptiste Point de Sabo, which is the Sorry. Which is the fur trapper <laughs> uh, that actually did you know traded with the Indians in this territory, Native American, excuse me, in, in the territory of what later on becomes Illinois.
0: And we learn about a few things that will become staples of this game in the coming years uh and, and decades, really. Things like the rack. Most games that you go to they have a uh,
1: uh, Hey, real quick. Yeah. What's the rack?
0: Well, the rack is the place where your well-to-do and well-known vampires will go and and just sort of it's the one place they're allowed to hunt. Uh not necessarily freely, but freely. You know, they can't just be out with their vampiric nature, but it's kind of like this is the place that's exclusive. It has all the right people in all the right places and you can go there and you can hunt provided that you You know, obey Loden's laws? Yes, absolutely.
1: Right, Loden's
0: laws, which will eventually be co-opted into the laws of Elysium.
1: And the major point beyond the right that Nate mentioned is that, um, to define a little more, these are the places Elders monitor and they take care of. Yeah. So this is the place you want to go to if you're a young vampire and you want to feed, granted it's on the Elders dime, they definitely will require favors from you, but you can go there at a whim, feed freely, and if it gets a little messy, they're the people to call and you actually know who will handle it which is a great relief, especially if you're a young vampire kind of cut loose on the town. As players, it gives you a great idea of how vampire politics works in terms of territories.
0: This goes into some very interesting themes that will follow throughout the game as far as the Camarilla is concerned. This is where Loden created the laws of Elysium. They call them Loden's laws in the book. They they mention the formation. They mention Primogen Council. This is like the first time you really get a sense of that. And it begins to detail all the positions you're going to grow to know and love. Things like the sheriff and the deputies and the keeper
1: of Elysium. It's the only book that gives you grand insight into what a prince is, which is why they kind of get sneaky with it, right? Where Prince Loden, his laws are like one. One of the laws is you cannot break the masquerade whatsoever. He threatens you directly in your own law. That if you break the masquerade, your life is forfeit. It's it's do not pass go. Second, one of the other ones. No, I'm not going to go in order here. But one of the other ones is you cannot touch the police. And a second, a third one is you can't deal with the media. Vampires <laughs> are all about are all about territories, including how they see facets ran in the city. And later on, this becomes known as just generalized influence of the city. But the prince locks it down. Yeah, Loden does. This,
0: this is like the first place that I can think of where you see that the prince creates laws specific to how he is going to govern his city and what you can do within it.
1: And actually, it's the template later on. L- Loden's famous in the Camarilla for establishing prince law, Like right. this is exactly how a city should be ran. And all the princes are assumed to adopt a version of it and definitely hold to this, except for the media and police. That's, that's a little different depending on where you go. But the point is, White Wolf establishes that as mm-hmm. the template for all points. Right.
0: And and by this time, we fully understand the traditions. And we haven't spoken about them in the podcast at all. But if you've played this game, you know them. There are six traditions. Feel free to look them up at your leisure. We won't go into them there. But this is, uh, in, in well, unless you want to, go, go right ahead.
1: Well, I think the traditions are important because they establish kind of the laws that vampires have to go by, right? right? The tradition of the masquerade. I believe it's thou shall not reveal thy existence of uh, to, to the mortals, basically, to the kind. And that is revealing vampires to mortals. That's what kind is referred to as mortals. The kindred are vampires. Right. Kindred and, and kind. And sect differences. Nate mentioned in previous podcasts <laughs> that there is the Sabbat, which is kind of the, well, it's the exact opposite of the Camarilla. That's your violent portion right. of all the vampires. For all intents
0: and purposes, it's the opposite side of the coin.
1: They're the monsters you're used to and seeing in films and whatnot. And... What the masquerade does is is important to keep people safe. Well, keep vampires safe, um, for mortal or the Inquisition again, I should say. Uh, another one is uh, law of destruction. This is important because it's often the most manipulated law there is, And that right of destruction goes to the eldest in the city or a given territory, and the eldest is always the prince. Right,
0: and that's we're starting to learn here the the subtle ways that vampiric society can interpret these traditions. The eldest, the prince. You know, does the elder, the eldest vampire in the city have the right of destruction or does just the prince who rules over the city? And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. And in in this book, we see there's that dichotomy. Loden is not at all the eldest kindred in the city, but he's the most powerful insofar as he has the ability to rule. And then you see that there's these ancients. And do they even care about his laws? Right. Do they care to observe them or to... uh, outright challenge him if given the opportunity
1: and about that the pressures of Loden. he also has a justicar named petrodon which is the Nasvaratu justicar what a justicar is is a judge jury and executor, exe- executioner who has carte blanche to go wherever and above a prince execute the laws of the camarilla and what's important about that is that he has three particular archons that we'll get to later that Nate already mentioned as the wolf pack. Those are his. A lot of people don't draw that correlation because the only reference to the Nosferatu uh, Justicar uh, Petrodon is a short quote that he gives about Chicago. And the important thing about Chicago is this Justicar hates Chicago because there are so many progeny that are made. Basically, Chicago's highlighted as a metropolitan Mecca of an overpopulous of vampires because it's so close to gary indiana you have chicago to boot you could even take the suburbs and make that its own territory and there are vampires that are out there too they don't even get into which
0: yeah which which they they mention as being like the outlands they're a place where you just don't want to go there's nothing there's nothing worth having out there but the cool thing about this book is it gives you from the very beginning of chicago before the country was even established we have the area of Chicago and what vampiric influences happen there. And they talk about the first prince of the city. And way back when, we talk about Maxwell. Maxwell is an interesting character because uh, there are a couple of different incarnations of that character. Uh, You'll learn later on down the road, and if you've read any of the New World of Darkness, it's essentially the same character. So Maxwell is a character that White Wolf has a strong fondness for. You know, whoever created this character definitely didn't want to leave it just to the unknown.
1: And you discover why. I mean, when you read about Maxwell on both versions of him and New Wad as well, and he's also the prince of Chicago and New Wad, Yeah. What you get into is that he, that historically it's like a culmination of all the founders of Chicago. I mean, back from the frontier days and they take aspects of them and combine them into one character. Yeah. And you can basically recycle that as much as you want and come yeah. up with a different aspect.
0: And you learn about the story uh, about what the downfall of Maxwell in his original incarnation of Prince and uh, and and his disappearance from the city. We'll learn something more about him in the further editions of Chicago by Night because there's more than one, folks. You have more to look forward to. <laughs> but uh, we go through the entire history. We learn about the, the rise of Loden and the rise of a... Sort of megalomaniacal kind of nightmare, in a, in a way of speaking, Uh what he would call himself would be an even tempered prince. But here's a prince who wants complete control, and in trying to find and establish complete control, here's an individual who went and found every powerful individual he could find in the city, and embraced them,
1: everyone. And when Nate means by powerful, we're not talking in obviously they're neonates, so yeah, they're we're, brand new, right? But Powerful means they control absolutely uh, an area they have. In particular, one I'm going to throw out because he's a favorite of mine. This guy named Horatio Ballard. <laughs> Horatio Ballard absolutely controls all the finances in the city. Yeah. His multiple law firms, his multiple businesses that are legit, ironclad. He is the richest vampire in the city of Chicago, if not United States of America. Actually, let me take that back because I know in, I know New York particularly has another kind of a kind of a bad. But Bad yes, he
0: definitely he was, uh, he was a powerhouse of, of wealth and finance in Chicago.
1: He's also a gourmand, which is a term. They take Horatio Ballard in A New World of Darkness as well in a form of they give him his own bloodline type. We won't get into you, that. Right. But when we mean by gourmand, Horatio Ballard's a vampire that loved food so much. I mean, he's a big, obese monster of a man stuffed into many right. tailored suits. Has a guy who caters to him, and it represents literally uh, one of the seven deadly sins, which of course is gluttony, in both influence and food. We'll just say right. that. Right?
0: As for as much as for as much money as he consumes and wallows in, he is the same with food. And it's interesting because the vampires can't eat. He he <laughs> is all. he is in in the same token. He's the exception to the rule, and he is the rule because he doesn't care. He can't eat. It's it's utterly disgusting the way they describe it, but that's what makes a character so interesting. One
1: description is an Italian restaurant that is his favorite that he owns, and he goes there and he has top five-star chefs cooking this Italian restaurant, and he'll eat a 12-course meal. And during that course meal, he has this man serving his ghoul who just waits on him with buckets. And what Horatio Ballard does is he eats an entirety meal as much as he can, and he re- just vomits like Roman-style bacchanalia right into these right. buckets, and they just take it off. Now, you got to understand, right. the, to do that, he's actually using up blood. Right. It's like one of the only feel you could when you vomit. That's why vampires don't right. eat usually. And, well, they can't eat, and he doesn't care.
0: It's uh, like if, if you've ever seen the movie Blade, there in the beginning of the movie, there's this v- this like disgustingly obese vampire that they like keep in a closet, essentially. Named that Pearl. Keep, yeah, the Pearl. So if you took that character and you put it in a suit and 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 carted it around to restaurants. But anyways, we're kind of digressing a little bit. We
1: did cuz I'm excited about the character section, uh, but but
0: but essentially it goes through the story of Loden and and Loden uh his right to embrace, he took full advantage of. We're talking street gangs. We're talking socialists. So we're you have, talking You have Kevin Jackson He right.
1: took on street gangs, right? Right. Um, we're just kind of going to steal it because you got to understand what he did with, with the street gang. He took the baddest gang member that's out there and gave him immortality. Right, And when he did that, this guy ensured, you can't kill me. I don't care what gang you are. You're going to step to my tune or you're going to die. Right, And this gave Loden an ironclad grip, what, what is usually on the Brujas side. Right um, or Bruja, excuse me, side of things. I call them Bruja. I, I do. I, I. It's notoriously that, but White Wolf does call them Bruja. So
0: I will. I will tell you, folks. Uh, just as a small sort of addendum to our conversation, if we pronounce these words in a different way than you're used to
1: pronouncing them it's chicago style
0: it is it is definitely okay we understand maybe our pronunciations are different or incorrect grammatically
1: incorrect like sausage you right, say, that's, sausage, that's, how, you say sausage. that's
0: how we're going to pronounce them in chicago a bruja is a bruja that's all i got to say about that
1: <laughs> so um you have kevin jackson in street um you got into briefly um the one who does the social political
0: yeah, so of so just to go down a brief list, because it's almost too long to to mention, but we have a character named Tommy Hins, and he was uh, a socialist, a renowned socialist, and Loden snapped him up and embraced him. We have Edgar Drummond. Edgar Drummond um was the son of a powerful railroad tycoon. Um and, and a ridiculous-looking character with a little choo-choo train hat. Um, so, so maybe just a little off of the, the plot there, we have Horatio Ballard. We have Lawrence Ballard, who is Horatio Ballard's chilled. Um, so he's one of the few that's not directly descended from, uh, from Loden.
1: And also showing Horatio Ballard's rebellious side to his own sire, which is right. Loden.
0: We, we have, we have uh, the probably the one stick-out character in the book, which is Capone uh in in chicago by night in white wolf canon alphonse capone was embraced by Loden. and this
1: almost led to Loden's execution yeah they even highlight they hint to it they don't highlight it, but they hint to it this is why petrodon one of the major reasons he can't stand it because the tradition of masquerade you're not supposed to reveal your presence al capone is infamous damn near worldwide right so him becoming a vampire if he could seen in a city uh, it's going to break the masquerade. Right. There's no mints and words. We
0: have uh, we have Edward Neely, who is uh, the sort of toady to Loden, and, and we'll a, learn more about him later.
1: And he's a pivotal character right. in Ashes to Ashes and whatnot right. through he, there.
0: He'll he'll be much more pivotal after Under a Blood Red Moon, which comes just a little bit down the road. We have Jacob Schumter or Schumpeter. I, I can't pronounce his name right, but I think it's Schumpeter. Um, and, uh, he's, he's another one that comes from the Chicago board of trade, another giant in finance. We have Kevin Jackson, which we already spoke about. We have Joseph Peterson, um, Joseph Peterson, a journalist, uh, ironically. And then we have Bobby Weatherbottom, the hurricane who is, uh, embraced in a much more modern era. He's, he's Loden's hacker child.
1: He's literally, Okay, so a thing about elders, elders are resistant to change because they control their network of power, and but time moves on and time moves past them into a vampire elder to a vampire period. What's a decade? Right. What's a century? And so what happens is the elders get very anachronistic, and the Ventru clan one of their their weakness for their bloodline one of them is that they are anachronistic. They do not let go of the control they have. Right. And Loden actually is Norwegian, and he he doesn't know no Right. He has no <laughs> concept of technology. Right. So enter Bobby Weatherbottom.
0: Right. Then we have we actually have two more. This is the this is the line of individuals that Loden embraced. Uh, we have Brennan Thornhill, well known and renowned handsome drug dealer. Um, obvious reasons why a would want to keep that around. Then we have the final character, Lorraine. And Lorraine is an interesting character because it's it's essentially a character that Loden embraced because she was beautiful to keep her. It's like, it's like he wanted a wife
1: as much as a vampire can love. That's where they kind of highlight the, the dark romance of vampire, because this is the prince's lady. I mean, everyone knows it. She's always around with them going on dates. It's Loden and Lorraine and Lorraine's not in every every power meeting because Loden actually kind of, kind of couches her, keeps her away from the rougher aspects of himself that a prince has to do. But Lorraine's every step of the way. Right. So much so, Lorraine's the only one out of all his children that he's actually tutored in the ways of vampiric power and right. disciplines. And,
0: and but uh she's a druggie. She she is uh she has virtually no influence outside of the fact that her sire's prince and her family had some minor political pull. Uh but she's she's an interesting character. You'll find out more about her later on down the road, and she'll kind of come into her own. Um, But we learn uh, as we go on, this is this is Loden's activity. Loden's brood, as it becomes known, he basically finds the most important people he can find to fit the niche that he needs, and he embraces them. So he's got a very extensive family of children that essentially all serve up to Rome, for lack of a better term. Um, But there are plenty of other elders that that push and shove to wrestle a bit of influence from him
1: and the thing about it is that the elders have absolute influence in these areas just because a vampire is an influence over a territory we'll take we'll take the street for example if you can imagine for every gang that kevin jackson controls an aspect like a gang leader or a lieutenant there's a vampire that controls one of the one of the lower rank guys you know someone to give him kind of the word out or what have you and they can worm their way into it particularly from the Ruja ruha clan uh they're that It's just the way that all the elders do, but you got to understand, when Maxwell was in power, he had a relationship with the elders where he allowed them to have chunks of the city. When Loden gets into power, there's sort of a power vacuum right? where he just kind of sweet talked all the elders into letting him be prince, and when he got there, ironclad, tyrannical rule, and the elders are kind of like, whoa. Right.
0: Well, and if memory serves correctly, uh it's been a little bit since I've read the specific passages, but... Um, that was Maxwell's kind of downfall was again, sort of allowing everyone to have influence unfettered and Loden saw this mistake and used these elders to his advantage to get rid of Maxwell. And then a large quantity of them, he either fucking did away with just killed off or he neutered in a sense.
1: The way the book describes it, he went about Loden did and he, on the, on the shadows recruited very skullduggery um a bunch of vampires and a couple elders into this sort of conspiracy and a, a very very much a conspiracy uh to plot against the princeton the plot against maxwell and when it comes to fruition it's an all-in-out war yeah. that happens and they take it in one night they take it to the streets and in, in the buildings and whatnot masquerade yeah. being preserved and they just murder or try to murder maxwell almost do yeah they and maxwell, cut his arm off right and Maxwell sees his allies, the people that used to be his allies, his elders, standing there with Loden. Them showing that they approve of him being there, and he fades. He fades right. into the into the into the woods, as it were. Yep. Goes and wins. So
0: we go on and we talk about geography. Now this is a pretty cool chapter because, uh, well, uh, let, let's just preface that with: remember, this book is from '91, so it's it's a bit dated. Some of the information may not be the same. Uh, it, and, and in all honesty, it doesn't necessarily matter because again, this is the world of darkness. This is, uh, you know, as it was when this book was released
1: in a lot of ways, it helps you too, because if it's dated, you can research it you right. can look up those times and it's a little easier. Right.
0: And, and so, uh, it starts off with, you know, the very, uh, you know, the downtown, the, you know, the pure Chicago locations. The cool thing about this book is. Each page has little maps and um, little gridded, uh, like, even smaller maps to show you. It's like somebody went on the Internet and did all their research for you, but before the Internet was here.
1: Right. <laughs> so imagine that. You had dial-up when this came out. You know, good old If you, had, if you had
0: that. <laughs> right.
1: And so you had this book because they knew you are going to need it uh, to note the information in it. And the important thing about downtown is the loop
0: the loop and then uh that's one of the major locations that they talk about and they talk about a lot of the different buildings they talk about the magnificent Mile, uh which is on the gold coast you know like most people don't you know that if you're not from chicago you don't know about this stuff
1: and the gold coast is where the majority of the up and up shop in chicago and they do have a resident vampire that lives in an apartment building in fact he owns and controls it. it's one of loden's children i don't remember a specific one uh but i believe it's someone that dominates uh, not ballard but ballard's uh not Ballard's shield, but uh Loden's um secondary financier that he does have in there. He has Ballard and there's another guy who I can't remember. You mentioned Oh him. yeah,
0: yeah. Uh it's either um it's either Neely or um Please hold.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, it could be Alan Sovereign.
1: I think it is Sovereign actually. That, that rings a bell. Important thing about Alan Sovereign again to give you an idea. He takes over and dominates a penthouse at the top. And there's a couple of penthouse suites that on the Gold Coast, a lot of near-do-wells own. by near do famous people, you know, rich people. And they consider him just an eccentric owner if they even know he's an owner, if they even know he's an owner. And what's cool about that is you really, it paints a picture of what you would see on the Gold Coast by just them getting into detail about that one building.
0: Yeah, so they go on um, to further detail the different areas of the city, the south side, um the north side i mean we we don't have to spend a lot of time on this um but because they'll go into pretty much all the different neighborhoods and what they, they call all that
1: all relate to one of the prince's children is the funny part yep. you can see where they attach and where yeah. they go the
0: the outlands which uh is re- the suburbs are referred to it it even goes into gary indiana a little bit um which if you're familiar with the the game they've already kind of gone into in, in previous books Anyways, there's some screaming children outside, so this is probably a place we want to cut. But anyways, they, then they talk about specific places of note. These are places that vampires consider part of Elysium. And uh, what, what is Elysium, Bob?
1: Elysium is a sanctuary. It's another set of rules established by Loden, and really the elders have pretty much talked to Loden about having a place where they can discuss nothing relating to politics or warring or what have you. It's historical sites or artistic sites where kindred go and they just enjoy these sites, right. which is not what happens here. Favors get exchanged. People owe one another, but violence is not accepted here. Right.
0: It's like neutral ground. Uh, that's, that's the example that they give. Um, if in doubt, the safest course is to assume that an area is within the Elysium. It is extremely unwise to violate the sanctity of Elysium since it is one of the few things that the Permogen and Loden agree upon. They invariably unite to punish wrongdoers, violating the tenets of Elysium, which are essentially violating Loden's laws. Bad for business. Very bad for you.
1: And remember, this ties into the anachronistic uh, nature of the elders. Why they have these places, because you will have an elder who was around when Michelangelo did one of his great works, and it's in the Art Institute. Guess what you don't get to do?
0: You don't get to fuck up the Art Institute. Exactly. Uh, it's it's a very simple concept. Um But this is the place where you really first get a feel for what that is. And they talk about the Art Institute of Chicago, the Lyric Opera Opera House, the University of Chicago, et cetera. Um, Then they go on to talk about the different locations in the rack, which you already kind of mentioned. We have uh, clubs called the Blue Velvet. Of course, we have the Succubus Club where it says, hey, go buy the book. Um, basically, (laughs) yes, Yes. like you should
1: have figured it out in another supplement. Um,
0: yeah. And then they go, they go more into detail about, uh, the barons and, and place like that. Then we go on to the giant chapter four, which is the kindred and this, you, it's hard to explain the scope of how many kindred are in this book, because if you've read later versions of Chicago by night, there's still a ton of characters in there. And we don't want to spoil anything for you specifically, but there's a bit of a shakeup between the first edition of Chicago by night and the second edition of and Chicago by night. And to make it night.
1: easier, I mean, they're just going to focus on the primogen. Those who rule the city, you know. Pretty much we're going to go by what I believe is, it's not even my belief in the book, it outlines what their positions are. Because this is also the first book that defines that it's not just a group of vampires and the prince lords over them. Right. It defines that there are, there are there's status to this. There's there's levels to this uh, ish, as they say. And you got to know them. Got to know. them. Right.
0: And uh, so we start off, of course, alphabetically with the Bruja and the Bruja is a large and fruitful clan, which is a little interesting considering that it's a venture controlled city. But the Bruja essentially stand in opposition of the Ventru, as they do. Um, But the Bruja in the city are very powerful, none the least of which because there is an ancient Bruja asleep under the city. I don't know if that has anything to do with it at all, but we we interact first with Primogen uh, Critius.
1: Well, the Primogen's Tyler.
0: There's, they both are.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> in, in go, for, edition, it. go for it. First edition, they both are. Go for it.
0: <laughs> so the Bruhar are actually represented by two elders, Tyler and Critias. And I'll I'll let you go into to either or.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and a harder one to define to remember, because Critias is often the least used of the two. Yeah because uh, Tyler's a more active one. And Critias is what you call, and not even what you call, he is an old world philosopher and, and student, really. He's an individual that loves looking at the laws. And, well, actually, let me say, state this. If you're familiar with the Greek concept of Entelemechi, uh, if I'm even, I'm probably butchering it, but Entelemechi is perfection of the body and perfection of the mind. And Critias came from that era. He came yeah. from those places. And what's unique about it, he himself, is a Methuselah by dint of age. Yeah,
0: he's he's one of the, he's probably the oldest awake, quote-unquote awake, I'm using air quotes because we have two Methuselahs that sometimes are awake and sometimes aren't, <laughs> right. that are sometimes manipulating from the background or, or always manipulating from the background. But as far as, like, main characters are concerned that are active and, and people are aware of, he's the oldest in the city, as far as I can
1: tell. And what he's notorious for, and I'm going to give you little quips about every person we talk about, or Nate will too, when we chime in. Uh, but what he's noted for is that when you talk to Critias, you are going to be there for a hot minute. He is a guy that likes to break down conversation and break you down for your opinions and thought process. And by breakdown, he wants to discuss it because he literally enjoys a fresh mind and a fresh perspective.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting character and one that has like a wealth of information for you to just, uh, you know, pick through and, and research great character to use in, in, any chronicle from there after Critias we have Tyler uh, Tyler of Bolingbrook who again is a isn't an, an old vampire um, not nearly as old as Greek time but right. um, goes back to you know like the medieval England fighting against the kings and, she even and her like name that.
1: and she was Patricia of Bolingbrook yeah and if I'm correct if memory serves correct she took the name Tyler after a lover was killed
0: yes that's correct
1: and uh, what's what's unique about Tyler is that she is very much a firebrand in the city more so than any elder and the fact that she's not afraid to cast a threat and to back up that threat herself or through her clan. Uh, and I love it because she's also noted to, to tell you about her power. It is against the law. Like we just, we mentioned Diabery briefly I believe in the first podcast, that concept where a vampire can eat the soul of another vampire through draining all their blood until a vampire ashes and they gain strength of the blood, which is noted as generation Tyler Absolutely diablerized, and they all know on the elder council, and she's seen as a diablerist and one of the most dangerous people. Because of that danger, the elders won't move against her.
0: Right, and then there's another thing that uh, is important to note too, that uh she. <laughs> it, it's interesting that they mention she is one of the first uh, kindred to realize the importance of air travel, and as such, right. she fully, unequivocally. Uh, controls she fully with without uh challenge controls O'Hare airport which makes her ridiculously powerful in that sense alone
1: highly influential
0: yeah so she's she's ridiculous uh, after her we move on to the gangrel i believe which uh the primogen of the gangrel is in yaga
1: is quite the character in yaga hills from africa which is where she comes from and per the gangrel philosophy of being a wanderer she ends up like centuries traveling across africa and eventually learns about boats takes one. And i do mean that she right. eventually <laughs> learned about boats takes one and just travels to the new world you know what's later in the americas as we know and in the new world she settles in the territory that later becomes chicago
0: yeah so she's she's a pretty interesting and powerful character uh after that we have annabelle of clan torridor
1: now, Annabelle, there's not much that, the I mean, to get into her history, which to be honest, I'm going to spare you, is rather boring. Because you'll learn from the Torador clan, basically, everyone's beautiful. Yeah. Everybody is perfected art.
0: Why she's interesting is because she is essentially a pretender to, to sit in the arena with these elders. Uh, her sire is Modius, who is basically Loden's hated rival. Uh, he's the schmuck from from Gary, Indiana, and it's important to note, too, which we haven't talked about earlier. Part of this whole forged in steel chronicle is Loden going out of his way to make uh, concentrated efforts to crush Gary's economy. He
1: ruins Gary. Right.
0: He the way that they write it into their canon is that Loden is responsible for the fall of Gary as a why city. why
1: Gary seems like a crap hole. They give you a reason. Yeah. And that's low and draining all influence to the city of Chicago. Yeah. So
0: Annabelle is his chilled, and she's a pretender. She's not she doesn't have the power or age to sit amongst these people, but she's the most influential torador. And it it basically it paints that picture. Why is she there? Because someone very powerful and very old is putting her in that position.
1: He was powerful, loosely, but yes, it's there. I, I'm talking
0: Methuselahs. Oh yes, yes you know yes, 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 yes. she is definitely one of those. Somebody's pulling her strings. In,
1: in fact, it's cited, and I remember that it's cited that Helena, Helen of Troy, actually manipulated Modius, but Menelaus, uh, kind of pulled the wool over Loden's eyes mm-hmm. or, or mainly directed him towards this dude. Right. And, and th- that's how the influence war goes yeah. between these Methuselahs. And he just put him in Gary. Right. The,
0: the, you'll find that the theme of this book from start to finish is webs within webs. Speaking of webs within webs, moving on uh, our final elder on the Primogen council is Nikolai of Clan Tremere. And uh, Nikolai of Clan Tremere is one of those classic characters that if you're familiar with this game, you've probably heard of. Or encountered, perhaps
1: he is one of the most interesting characters in the whole book because he's actually a child. And as in, by child, it's hard to say, they don't give a direct age, but they're like, he could be hey, 10, 12 years old. Yeah, he yeah. could be there. It depends on how he wants to, right? Actually, he's, how you want to portray him. He's essentially prepubescent, exactly. And he is trying, he sees himself, of course, as an adult, dresses with the top hat, the coattails, the whole nine, usually, because again, anachronistic that's what was in style when he was made. And more importantly, he is one of the most powerful elders bar none because of his control and mastery of vampiric magic, blood magic, which is known as Thaumaturgy. Now, he also controls the Tremere clan. And to know the Tremere clan, it's a clan that is terrifying to the other clans because they bring blood magic or Thaumaturgy to the Camarilla. And they first talk about it here. And that clan uses that as a bargaining chip if you have a problem Tremir can solve it because magic solves everything.
0: Right. So moving on from the Primogen Council. And again, these are your seven your not all seven of your clans are are accounted for because the Primogen Council, the common misconception that a lot of people have in, in their home games and and just in playing this game is that a primogen council will be represented will be represented by all seven of the clans or all six of the clans. That's not true. It is the powerful elite. And it's not bound specifically by clan. That's why we have two Bruja. That's why we don't have a Malkavian.
1: In fact, they get into that.
0: We also have an Asfra too, we forgot, but carry on.
1: Uh, in fact, they get into that in a later supplement called Permigen. I just wanted to mention that because there is one out there that yeah. defines that. Stuff. Yeah,
0: there, there's a, hey, there's there's 25 years of books. Right, <laughs> Everything, right. Everything's going to get defined. But uh, so uh, the last Permogen that we have on the council is uh, Khalid. Of Clan Nosferatu, and Khalid of Clan Nosferatu is an ancient Middle Eastern warrior, essentially, who was embraced and, uh, um, you know, lost his faith and dwells in the sewers. And
1: he's interesting because he starts off being a warrior and through a warrior undefeated. He's he's without peer in everything that he does, and it describes how he gets embraced. But more importantly, the embrace is cool, kind of. I mean, nothing unique, but it's just a cool, a cool little note. Mm-hmm. But as he goes to the ages, and this is the important part, his humanity becomes a factor in how he, and humanity is the morality uh, rule in the game that they use for players to understand how you should act, uh, to, whether calloused or, of course, um, to put it in perspective, think of Interview with the Vampire. Tom Cruise's character, was, which is, play, is Lestat, is very much, ah, whatever, eat them. That's what they're there for, they're just people. And Louie can't handle that, right? Right. Louie played by Brad Pitt is very much, oh, but they had a life and they're humans and I miss my wife and, oh, I want a daughter. That's that dichotomy. That's what humanity does. And Khalid is a near monster at this point and his clan knows it. And a lot of the primogen are terrified of this cat because he seems very calm and on the level, but as his clan knows in any given moment, he can snap. And mm-hmm. when he snaps, they have people specifically assigned in there, children that he's made, mm-hmm. that serve to calm the beast down because they know the value of their sight. Right.
0: So, moving on from the primogen, this is also where we, we discover our friends, the Sabbat.
1: Oh, 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 wait, wait. Note, and I know you're going to get this, <laughs> yes. there are two Malkavians we have to note because of the Great Chicago Fire. Right. One is Mother O'Leary, mm-hmm. I believe is Maureen O'Leary, I think is yeah. her name, and then the other one is Son. Now, uh, which one do you want to take, Maureen? You want to do something?
0: Well, give me just one second here, because uh, um, so, so we have we have Maureen O'Leary. Maureen O'Leary is uh, the older, you know, grandmother type, um, and uh, she she's responsible for those twins and son. So she she's the she's basically like the the den mother. She brings all the terrible shit to to light. Um.
1: And to, and to inform that to give an idea of Maureen O'Leary she's insane Oh yeah it's yeah. it's just all Malcavians are that way and they paint how dark they are.
0: Yeah so they do a really great job in here of presenting you Malcavian characters in a way that they' they were intended. A lot of people, I feel, misinterpreted what Malkavians were and they played them as kind of comical and whimsical and uh, like just wacky and batty, like, oh, we're all crazy, like like a Mad Hatter type of character. That's not what they are.
1: The phenomena of creepy clowns later will be discussed in Nerd Words, but uh, they, that would be a Malkavian prank. Right. They would run around and for no reason frighten people that way. Right. Just because it's funny. It seems to be a prank, but there would be a point to it, too. Right. case in point O'Leary when she embraced Son, tortured him and deliberately stripped him of his humanity to the point where he snapped and mm-hmm. he's utterly psychotic Sun is so psychotic that it talks about how he took this caitiff and to describe a caitiff, it's a clanless vampire someone who didn't have a sire that taught him the ropes and he doesn't even know his own clan and other clans usually adopt them or bring them in depending and Sun's one of those people but the reason why Son brought him in is because he loves to play a particular game and that game is he lures people into his basement that are usually vampires he chains them up and then he tells them that the werewolves are coming and how dangerous the werewolves are and he'll he'll leave like there'll be a sound upstairs that he causes and then he leaves when he comes back down um have an ability and exactly like the nosferatu to look like whoever they want and when he yeah. comes back downstairs, he has that ability in a very unique way. He looks like a werewolf. And when he comes downstairs, he eats the person chained. Right. It's completely psychotic.
0: Yeah. They, they, uh, the Malkavians in this book, they are they're no good for anybody. But in insofar as they are great, they're fantastic.
1: And so the in Little Chicago history, they say that there was a cow that kicked over a lantern and started the Great Chicago Fire. Yeah. You and- can read about that if you want to. That's actually the historical fun story that people tell in the Chicago by night in a world of darkness, Marina Leary kind of led this plan to get rid of her rivals in the city and how she did it was this fire. And it's assumed that son's the one who started it. He was part of that plan and they did it. They they leave it to the storyteller and your imagination as to exactly how, but basically it's not that hard to say they threw the lantern or whatever you wanted to say. And when this fire started, they there's control that's utilized and they assume it's from the Malkavians because they have no idea what the Malkavians control. And indeed they don't have a permogen position. And because of that, Maureen actually goes about uh, this plan very ingenious and setting it on fire. And there were even more vampires than this book mentions that died in that fire.
0: Yep. So ha- having talked about all of the clans specifically, um, we move on to the Sabbat finally, but it, the Sabbat in this is funny OK, because uh, they don't have any clans. So this is before probably this is before they they created the clans and and the concept of antitribute and introduced them into any. We know that they haven't been introduced yet. So but they don't have worry. They have a book. Right. So they have things like Sire. <laughs> right, Right. Right. <laughs> they have things like humanity. Zero. Just none. Now we we'll learn later on down the road what that means to have a humanity of zero.
1: The second edition they fix some of that. Right,
0: right. So so these are these are kind of the, some of the funny things that we find in these early books because they haven't they haven't ironed it out. So they have characters like uh, Philippe Regard, who we'll learn about later in the second edition when they've ironed out some more information about the clans of these characters. You know who their actual sires were. We have characters like Wendy Wade again, her sire sabbat coven <laughs> her humanity again zero
1: this is where i suspect they were rushed for a deadline
0: right well they were just like well we know what the it's this they're sabbat they're just sabbat so they have they have no defining characteristics satan is vampire right right cause we don't, we don't know what in. they are then we have uh the monitor again there's no clan mentioned on here on here it does mention a sire
1: is that rebecca uh
0: yeah it is rebecca in in this book, they just call her the monitor, although in the first line, they call her Rebecca. In the later incarnations, they'll call her Rebecca the monitor.
1: And in, and in that description, they talk about an organization of super elders, right? They're Methuselahs that have banded together called the Inkanu. And they're yeah. the ones who stand off as neutral from the jihad entirely. Right. Basically, they stepped away from all the politics we're talking about and simply exist. And observe. Right. Right. And they they send out the monitor to sort of keep in tab. Right. On things. This is
0: essentially uh, like a linchpin character. This character, if if you wanted to use it in a chronicle, this character has all the answers. She knows everything. So it's one of those things where if you're not sure how to proceed, you can just throw the monitor card. Um, but it does it does mention the Inkanu, but yep, uh, clearly doesn't define it too greatly. That's too um, much knowledge on my part. Right. Then, then we have a, another another creature. If you remember this one, Gilfora, which is a succubus. Yes, miss. it's
1: a it's a bona fide demon, right? That was given stats, and Gophora, um is used under a blood red moon, and it's the phantom building, and somehow this per this thing fits in to whatever you want.
0: Yeah. So at the end of this book, when we talk about others, this is like the the really ridiculous shit you can throw in for, you know, th- this is what I call lazy storyteller fodder. Not sure how to proceed? Throw in a demon.
1: I really think they spitballed all these supplements. They had to have yeah. before they wrote about them. And I think they're like, oh, eventually we're going to get demons and whatnot more in depth. What does that look like? Well, let's make one and throw it in a book. Right,
0: right. Because you, you have things like a, a character that... D- it's not a vampire. We we understand that. We have stats that, and if you've been following along, you understand how the stats work. Who who has like a charisma of eight, a manipulation of nine, an appearance of ten.
1: And this is on a scale of one through ten. One being weak as a baby, right? If not zero, to right. being powerful enough in terms of I think strength does it best. Best a strength of ten, you have the natural strength to punch a hole in the hole right. of a tanker.
0: So to put it in perspective, as a new character, when you're first starting this game, you get to create a character that has physical, social, and mental attributes that equal 7-5-3 according to how you wish to prioritize them. This is a character with 15-27-15. So, <laughs> like, this is something your, your players are
1: it's, it's they're not supposed to
0: win right it's it's the devil you put them up against the devil and, there and it is now that
1: i've moved the cobwebs i believe they they recommend using her because you have helen of troy's incredibly beautiful up and walking around and i believe she's pretending to be some sort of dj groupie uh, in the succubus club anyway Who? something like the helen
0: oh not until second edition whoops yeah so but she's spoiler just a alert my right. fault spoiler alert right now alert. she's a sleeping Methuselah. so
1: but then you have annabelle and then you have uh i believe it's portia yeah. Nope, I'm jumping ahead again. Yeah, That's are. the name yeah. of... Yep. All right. So, regardless, um, do they talk about uh, Annabelle's uh, fake sire? Uh, I don't is remember. Is I,
0: I think it, we learn about all that stuff in second-ed. This, this is a time where most of the secrets are sort of... Uh, they're kept under wraps.
1: Okay, so, basically, you would use the succubus as being the beautiful woman walking around, raising hell that people assume is some vampire. And it's not. But it's like Nate said, it's lazy storytelling.
0: Yeah, it, it's not. I mean, it's not necessary for you to use it. Like you could, you could be a really smart storyteller and use some of these characters to really interesting effects. And your players would go, gee, I wonder what that was. But these are also these are trump cards.
1: But imagine, if you will. Oh, man, I'm out in the town. There's this gorgeous woman and she's totally into me. And I'm a player. And there's this big role play. And then I get behind a closed door. She shuts the door and gets naked. And ha, ha, ha she's a demon and kills you right
0: or also say for instance your players are not following your subtle clues to follow evidence or go investigate other clues that you're laying for them and you really want to manipulate them into it but you don't want to have to work for it there's a goddamn demon in that right there is a goddamn demon for you to use so i think that's enough time on that the next uh, sort of phase, um, because it, we, we haven't moved on to another chapter yet, is they go into, and this is really cool, too. I think this is a great thing. And I don't think that they did it enough in later books, but they detail all of the relationships of these vampires. So you as a storyteller, or even you as a player, can go, okay, I understand. We understand. We have a flowchart of the Primogen Council.
1: I can explain why it doesn't, because we, we had the privilege of talking to Justin and I use privilege use, uh, loosely, but he's, he's a good enough guy. But basically, when Justin Achilles started getting more in-depth in the writing of books, he said flat out, you can't assign vampire relationships because it's different in every chronicle. Right. So, But you can use that format. They pitched right. it to you to show that relationship because it's an easy chart for an ST right. to keep track of.
0: Right. We go into the relationship of Loden's Brood. We go into the relationship of what we call the sewer rats, which are the Nosferatu and the variety. We go into the shantry, which is the Council of Elders and the Tremere Chantry. We go into what we call the inmates. We go into the socialists. We go into anarchs. The lists go on and on and on. So basically, it gives you a whole chapter of interpersonal relationships, how they feel about each other, how they interact with one another, which is really great for you as a storyteller. If, and and it, saves you, it saves you months of fucking work creating all this shit yourself. And it helps you keep track of shit in your head. So in my opinion, I think it's a very good, very good tool.
1: Chicago first edition is good, especially if you're following Canon. I'm a fan of the second ed book as well. Um, and I don't, I assume we're not in that order yet. We have no, no.
0: Yeah. Second ed is uh, it's about a year away and it's kind of not literal, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when we go over Chicago by night, second ed, uh, we're just really going to talk about stuff that's changed.
1: And honestly, if you have the first edition book, you have the majority of the second ed book. Right, and it's just important to know characters. Like I kind of spoil alert some stuff, ruin it, but yeah, we will we'll go over it again.
0: We will tell you in advance. The people that you're reading in this book now are not necessarily the people that are going to be in there in 1992 when Chicago by Night Second Edition comes out.
1: It's not that they forgot some big happens.
0: No, no, yeah, some some big stuff happens. But uh, going on from there, the next chapter is storytelling, which clearly White Wolf at this point is just hammering storytelling home.
1: Plot hammer,
0: just telling you how to get shit done but it's basically the end of the book from there i mean it's got some encounters things that you can interact with it's again you're you're running sort of module based stuff the last chapter of the book it's mostly all module based stuff
1: and here they're competing with dungeons and dragons 100 percent. yeah they were creating modules because Dungeon Dragon had all these modules that educated people on how to be a storyteller in the style that they wrote the game, mm-hmm. which is the same thing D&D did. Yeah. Um, am, am I saying it took away? I, let me say this. They perfected it. d was very bland and a boring right, read right. most times. This was actually work. They right. took the effort and the time to give you the total package, and that's why I think the, book is, the books are good right. for that. I don't personally need... And, and don't use the modules that don't need it. No. But if you're brand new and you're hearing this and you're like, man, how do I put all this together? These are the books to get right.
0: These, these first three or four books that white wolf released will give you untold hours of gaming potential, and it'll help you to get more creative as well. Once you're done going through these modules and these different encounters and the things that you can do, you're going to create your own stories. You're going to create, you're going to have a world that your players will believe and as a player if your storyteller is doing the right work you should be fully invested there's people everywhere with talons and every little thing and every little thing that you're going to want to do somebody's going to be there some nefarious old vampire is going to want to have something to do with it
1: and they give you all the maps you can map out the territory and you know who's there so your players undoubtedly one counter because the city is jam packed with undead.
0: So uh, just to wrap up, since we we did basically three books, um, you know how how would you rate Chicago by Night and these other books in your library? Where would you put them?
1: In my library, the modules I throw to them, freaking wolves. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't. But again, I've been doing this for twenty years. I mean, to give you an idea for Vampire the Masquerade, I just been at it steady. And I'm well beyond the modules. But even when you read them, it's it kind of insulting to me to go back and read those and try to even piece anything together from it. Because like I said, it's, it's basic wheels, you know, train right, wheels. Right, When it comes to Chicago by night, that's a must. Because I feel if you're going to run, I'm a Canon guy. Yeah. But I run Canon with my own editions, with my own alterations. And fans of my games understand that. Right. And a lot of people just swear by it. And when it comes to Chicago by night, it serves as a Bible. Uh, for that. It's literally everything you need to know about, like I said, the the territories help. Lowen's Laws are definitely a must. You should never cut those out of a game. And Elysium, or the Elysia as it's called for uh, multiple. And the important thing here, I feel, is that you, not only understanding uh, the politics as they're written, it's how unique and important one NPC is to the totality of your overall chronicle.
0: Yep, Uh, I would agree with you. Uh, I believe that as far as the Succubus Club book is concerned, maybe in 91 it was a really great addition to a library, but I feel like it's not a worthwhile purchase. I
1: And I remember the name of that ghoul gang. Hmm. They're just called the Vikings. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. Um,
0: so, So my personal opinion on it, Succubus Club if you can find it on pdf if a friend has it you know if you want to borrow it for a read great i don't think it's worth the time or effort to purchase it's not really and imperative
1: relatively cheap on drive through rpg yeah. anyway
0: you can you can get these for a couple of bucks if you want to spend a couple of bucks definitely pick it up it's great to have as a collector's item other than that i don't really see a need or an importance to your game uh in addition ashes to ashes it's got some great storyline stuff cool read it it's uh in retrospect it's kind of corny, but at the time, not bad. Chicago by Night, uh it's a must whether you're getting the first edition or the second edition. I would say definitely get the first edition because it has a lot more great characters than are available in the second edition. And right. uh, and and you you want to at least be able to have the option to use them. Um but yeah, so uh, Definitely get Chicago by Night, and if you can pick find, pick a second because I love it. If you can find all of these sort of bound in uh, some large edition books for cheap, <laughs> like we may have,
1: pick them up. Uh, we did. In fact, I bought them individual, and then we went to Gen Con and they started putting multiple books in one. It's titled Chicago Chronicles Volume One.
0: Yeah. The, to put it in perspective, there's three Chicago Chronicles. We're not going to review those because they're not standard releases. Um, we'll review the in, individual books. Speaking of reviewing the individual books, do you know what's up next?
1: Probably something I hate.
0: Our next book is Alien Hunger and because it's its own standalone story, we don't have anything we can lump it in with. It's uh it's another city book. It's 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 a thing. We'll we'll give it its
1: due. It's quick, we might do yeah. two. Yeah, we I we, hope we, we, do we two. might
0: we might do two books, uh but we'll we'll see. We have a little bit of time to prepare for it. But until our next episode, I am Nathan and I'm Bob and thank you for listening to 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade.